Well, good morning, family. Good to see you all this morning. Good to be here in the Lord's house and good to be leaning on the everlasting arms. I encourage you to take your Bibles, if you would, open to the book of Daniel. We are in week two of a nine-week series looking at one of the most extraordinary men in all of Scripture. This morning we're in Daniel chapter 2, which is a marvelous story filled with... Actually, the whole book has great stories. Daniel is actually... One half of it is story and one half of it is prophecy, a little bit mixed together, but half story, half prophecy. In this series, we're focusing on the story, on the life of Daniel. Not because the prophecy isn't worth studying, it's just we don't have the time in this particular study. This morning's story is a rich story with marvelous lessons, and I I hope you're going to be as excited to hear it as I am to share it. So let's pray as we come to the Word this morning. Father God, thank You for Your Word. It truly is a marvel. You, the Creator God, Lord of all, the God of heaven, You have spoken You've communicated with us so that we might know You, so that we might have relationship with You. You even spoke to us through Jesus Christ, the living Word who came to rescue us out of sin. So Father, we come this morning here to this book of Daniel. We ask that You would speak to us in it and speak to us through it. That these would not just be words that we hear, but truths that we apply to our life this morning. So do a work through the speaker and do a work through the hearers that in all of it, that your spirit would use your word to accomplish your purpose in us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. What do you do when the walls come crashing in? When some crisis arises in life and life as you know it appears to just hang in the balance, it can happen so quickly. A knock at the door and there's a police officer standing there. You get a phone call from a family member. You discover a pink slip in your mailbox at work. You find a note left conspicuously on the kitchen counter. Or a doctor comes in with dreaded diagnosis. This past Wednesday evening, I was with John and Betty Kirk. And Betty commented, we just never know what a day will bring. We were at the hospital after a very long day that was filled with questions and uncertainties following the discovery that John has a brain tumor. John, from his bed there at the hospital, said, as he's laying flat on his back, he looked at me and he said, there's no panic here. How do you get to a place where there's no panic here? Where there is calm in the crisis, confidence in the storm? 
that's our focus this morning here in Daniel chapter 2. Just a quick review in case you weren't here last week. We'll get you caught up. Last week in chapter 1, Daniel and his three amigos, his three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, they were taken by King Nebuchadnezzar along with some other young men as hostages from Judah to Babylon because King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon had brought Judah into subjection under him. They were resolved in this new place in Babylon, these four young men, they were resolved to not compromise their faith in God nor their love for God. And God blessed these young men. He enabled them to excel in Babylon University. They graduated at the top of their class and they were moved into uh, and entered into the service of the king. Last week we also noticed, by the way, there's, there's uh, Judea and there's Babylon. It's about 500 miles as the crow flies. Uh, we also learned last week that there are three major lessons in the book of Daniel that are woven all through the book. We saw them in chapter 1 last week. We'll probably see them here today in chapter 2 and we'll see them pretty much every week as we go along. Three big lessons in this book. The first is this, that God is in control. He is working His purpose and no people will ever thwart that. Second big lesson in this book is that God is with those who trust in Him. God is working for our good. The third big lesson in this book is the lesson of how to live as God's people in Babylon. How to live godly lives in a pagan culture. Daniel stands as a sterling example of what it looks like to live godly in a pagan place. So with that said, let's Move into chapter 2, verse 1. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. And so they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream. And my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Nebuchadnezzar says here had dreams that troubled him. And probably if you're like most of us, you have had a dream or two in your life that has troubled you. Psychology would say that probably that your subconscious is trying to communicate or is communicating through your dreams. Most of us would probably just say that such dreams are a result of spicy pizza, or uh, too much stress at work. But the ancient Babylonians considered dreams to be very significant. They had literally written the book on dreams. Archaeologists have found that the Babylonians had dictionaries, volumes of dictionaries, all about dreams. So if, for example, you had a dream about a, a bird... And the chariot, they would, and you went to them, they would go and dig through their books and say, oh, you dreamed about a bird and a chariot, you know, you have issues with your mother, you know, or whatever. <laughs> and uh, 
that's, that's what they did. You notice in verse 3 and 4, though, Nebuchadnezzar didn't just have dreams. It says he had a dream. He wants to know his dream. And so it's singular. It's both plural and singular. So what's going on? Simple. It means he's having the same dream again and again and again. So he has dreams, but it's the same dream. It's a recurring dream. Now, this may have gone on for days or weeks, or it may be, and it's kind of what I think from just reading this, but it may be just in one night. He went to bed, had a dream. Woke up, went back to sleep, had the dream again. Got up, went back to sleep, had the dream again. And it was vivid and it was, we find later, it was terrifying. It's frightening. And he is, as he says here, he is troubled. He wants to know what in the world is going on. What does this mean? So he called in, and they use a lot of names here, words we might use. He called in the occultist. He called in the psychics. He called in the Wiccans and he called in the scholars and he brought them in and he wants to know what does my dream mean. Now, the king, this is, this is all happening in the night. He has woken up. He's not sleeping and the king doesn't sleep. Nobody sleeps. He wakes everybody up and brings them in. One thing you might notice later on as we go through this, is that Daniel and his buds are apparently not on the invite list. Don't know why. doesn't say. But even though they're officially on staff, even though they're considered in the realm of the wise men of Babylon, Daniel and his buddies are not there. Maybe it's because they're just still young. These, these guys are probably at this point some 18 to 20 years old. Maybe it's that they're just newly graduated out of Babylon U and they're just in the apprenticeship program of the wise guys. And so, you know, whatever, they're not there. Verse 4. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, and I'm going to stop there for a second. The wise men answered the king in Aramaic and then Daniel does something unusual. As he's writing, he is writing in Hebrew, as most of the Old Testament is written in Hebrew. He's writing along in Hebrew, and right here it says they spoke in Aramaic. Daniel shifts over and writes in Aramaic. And he continues writing in Aramaic all the way through the rest of chapter 2 and into chapter 3 and into chapter 4 and into chapter 5, all the way through the end of chapter 7, which has caused scholars through the through the centuries to scratch their heads and to spend reams of paper and gallons of ink uh, debating about why in the world did he switch to Aramaic for this part of the book and then go back to Hebrew. I am not all wise and all knowing, but I'll give you my thoughts on it. Daniel doesn't explain why, but it helps to understand what Hebrew, of course, is the language of the Jews. Aramaic was the language that was the trade language that, that everybody spoke in the Middle East. So if you were a Jew, you spoke Hebrew, but you also spoke Aramaic because that's how you did business with everybody around. If you were in Babylon, you spoke Babylonian, but you also spoke Aramaic. 
If you were up in Nineveh in Assyria, you spoke Assyrian, but you also spoke Aramaic. If you were down in Egypt, you spoke Egyptian, but you also spoke Aramaic. Everybody spoke Aramaic. Why does Daniel switch here to Aramaic? Well, my guess is that what God has here in the rest of chapter 2 and all through chapter 3 and 4 and 5 and 6 and 7 is God has some important messages that He wants everybody to hear. He wants it accessible to everybody whether you are Jew or whether you're Babylonian or any other of the, of the nations that are under the Babylonian Empire or later the Medo-Persian Empire. Two big messages that I think are here in these chapters that are woven through these chapters that I think are significant, especially for the, the people who are not part of God's people, the Jews. The first message is this. We find that all through these, we see that there is only one true God. Matter of fact, in these chapters, three different pagan kings, King Nebuchadnezzar and his grandson Belshazzar, and uh, later Darius the Mede, three pagan kings, all come face to face with the power of God, the incontrovertible power of God, and they are forced to recognize that there is the God in heaven. Two of them, Nebuchadnezzar and Darius, issued decrees that are published throughout the entire through their entire empires that give honor to God. God wants to get a clear message to people. There is one God. I am He. Second big message that you'll see as you go through these chapters is that you discover that there's a message that God's kingdom will one day replace all the kingdoms of man. Nebuchadnezzar is establishing basically a world empire, at least an empire that, that covers the entire Middle East. And there, there will be prophecies in this book that talk about coming empires. But the big message is that don't get all hung up on the empires and the kingdoms of man because man is not in control. God is, and God will one day set up His own kingdom on earth. God's kingdom will replace the kingdoms of men. Back to verse 4. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we'll show the interpretation. And the king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm. If you do not make known the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb and your houses be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, then you, receive, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation." Nebuchadnezzar is upset about this dream. It is really bothering him. He wants to know what it means. So he calls the wise men in, tell me the dream. Now apparently up to this point, the standard operating procedure has been what the wise men say. All of these, these guys, they say, King, tell us the dream and we'll tell you what it means. You tell us the dream, we'll go to our books, we'll look it up, we'll find out you know, what this means and this means and this means. We'll put it together and we'll tell you. Nebuchadnezzar, however, shakes things up this night. 
I think he understands that this isn't your typical dream. This isn't your I'm falling dream, if you've had those, or I'm drowning dream, or, or your I go into battle and find I'm in my underwear dream. This dream is so vivid, it is so frightening. And I, I think he realizes this dream is different and this dream must have some message from the gods. And if it's a message from the gods, I want to know what it is. And if it's a message from the gods, it is really, really important that I get it right because it might be dangerous if you get it wrong. See, Nebuchadnezzar, I think, instinctively understands something. That is that false religion is not cute. False religion is not even innocuous. It's not neutral. False religion is dangerous. So he says, my decision is firm. You tell me the dream and the interpretation. Riches, honor, rewards will be yours if you do. If you don't, well, we're going to rip your arms and legs off. It's going to be a bloody, gory, painful death. And then, just to add the icing on the cake, we will take your house, all your possessions, and we will turn all that into the public latrines. That's what he says, laid waste. We're going to turn it into the public bathrooms. So that any memory of you, anything, it's all soiled. <laughs> the ultimate insult here to them. Harsh stuff, but not untypical for Eastern despots of the day. Verse 7, they answered a second time. And they said, let the king tell his servants the dream and we'll show the interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you're trying to gain time because you see that the word for me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You've agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream. I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. Again, he says, they say, King, tell us the dream. He says, no. He says, I think you guys are just stalling for time. You're hoping I'm going to change my mind. But it's firm. I'm not going to change my mind. This is the way it's going to be. Tell me the dream. The Chaldeans answered the king, said, there's not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing the king asks is difficult and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Because of this, the king was very angry angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. The wise men tried again to get the king to tell him the dream, but he wouldn't hear of it. And now they, they come back and they've said, well, look, king, what you're asking can't be done. Nobody can do that. No man can read the thoughts of another man. Only God can do that. And they're right. They're right. What they don't know is they're setting the stage for our friend Daniel in a few minutes. Only God can do that. 
Then they go on. No king has ever asked such a thing before of his advisors. This has never been done, king. Nobody's ever done this. You're not being reasonable. That really doesn't go over well with unreasonable despots. (laughs) And so he doesn't even say, you know, let's just give it a little time. Why don't you guys go talk about it? He just says, okay, you're done. He gets angry and just says, kill them all. Wow. We finally got to the point in the story where we catch up with our heroes. They have been left out so far, but here they they come. Verse 13. So the decree went out. And the wise men were about to be killed, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel. And Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint a time, appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. I imagine that Daniel and the boys had apparently gone to bed as usual that night. They spent the night in blissful ignorance of all the trouble going on in the palace. And it probably now is early morning because Nebuchadnezzar had time to sleep for a while and dream and wake up and not get back to sleep and be disturbed by this dream and call in all the wise guys and have the little disputes with them then call in his soldiers and send them out to round up the rest of the wise men. And so it's probably about time that the alarm clocks have been going off for Daniel and the three amigos. And and, uh, they're beginning to stir and in my imagination at least this is how it goes. They're beginning to wake up. It's about time to get up, have some Devo time and, and some prayer time and then have breakfast and get ready for work. Maybe it's Daniel's turn to make the coffee. And so he's gotten up and he's got the pot of water and he's stirring the coals and getting the pot on the, on the fire and the door breaks open. And in comes Arioch with his SWAT team. They go crashing through the house and dragging these guys out. By the way, Arioch is called here the captain of the bodyguard. That word bodyguard can also be translated cook. But not cook as in he moonlights as a chef on the food channel. But cook as in the guy that chops the meat. This is Arioch, a.k.a. the butcher the head of the chief's executioners. So put yourself for a moment on in Daniel's place as you're there, you know, you're still kind of a little groggy, you just got up, you, you're, you're uh, you know, just got the coffee on, it's just been a normal night, everything's been normal, all of a sudden the door breaks open, in comes Butch and the executioners, and um, they're throwing everybody down on the ground and going to haul you off to kill you. While I embellished all the details, what we see from the story is they're caught off guard. They have no idea what's happening. 
And suddenly the walls are crashing in and they are about to be executed. How do you respond? What's surprising is you read what Daniel's response here. Did you see what it is? Or it says here that he replied with prudence and discretion. He isn't panicked. He's not running. He's not screaming. He's not fighting back. He's not protesting. Instead, the picture is they bust in and, Butch, how you doing? What's up? Why? Why so urgent? Would you like a cup of coffee? <laughs> Let's talk. Butch tells him the whole thing. And then Daniel says, could you get me in to see the king? And Daniel goes to ask for more time. Isn't that amazing? Calm, composed, Confident in utter chaos and crisis. What makes someone like this? And can you and can I become this kind of person? In the remaining minutes that we have this morning, I want to just note four qualities that we see here in Daniel that I think are keys to being calm in crisis. They're the four qualities of a calm heart. First thing I see here is a confidence in God. A trust in God. Why is Daniel calm? He's calm because he trusts in God. It says he responds with prudence and discretion, but we don't see here his trust in God, but we do see it if we just go down a few verses. You'll see it down in verses 21 and 22. Look at what it says down in verse 21 and 22. It says that He, God, changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals the deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with Him. Daniel has confidence in God that is not just a general belief that there's God out there. Daniel has a calm confidence in God that is deeply rooted in who God is. That Daniel knows because he has studied well what God has said about himself. He has thought carefully about who God says He is. And Daniel has become firmly convinced that God is exactly who He says He is. What he says here in these verses, he says that God changes times and seasons. God is in control with the times and the seasons. We have winter right now because God has put winter on this part of the earth and this part of the year. God controls it. 
God could stop the world at any time. He could change the tilt of the earth. He can do anything He wants, but God is in control. He sets the times and seasons. But He doesn't just do that with nature. He does it in your life and mine. Solomon, writing Ecclesiastes, talks about that. To everything there's a time and a season. God is in control of the seasons in our life, including the day of our birth and the day of our death. Therefore, if God is in control of my life and my birth and my death, I need not fear when Butch comes busting through the door with an order to kill me. I need not fear. God is in control. If I die today, it's because God is in control. If I don't die today, it's because God is in control. I will relax. And not only is it God is in control of the seasons and the times, He says that He raised, removes kings and He sets kings up. I don't need to be fear, in fear and intimidated by the king of Babylon, even though he, Nebuchadnezzar is the ruler of everything in the world that we know of. He's only ruler because God has set him up as king. And when God says He's done, He will no longer be king. God is in control of the kings and so I'm not, I'm not afraid. But not only that, the king wants information, but I notice here Daniel says that God is the one who reveals deep and hidden things. God knows the hidden things. God knows the future. He knows the past. He knows what is in the heart and the minds of someone. He knows the information that Nebuchadnezzar wants to know. And if God wants him to know that, and if He wants me to reveal that to him, God is going to tell me what He needs to know. And so Daniel has confidence in a God who is in charge. And Daniel says, take me to the king. And Daniel goes to the king and says, King, give me a little time that I can, bring, I can give you the information you want. And you know what? God is in charge. Butch breaks through the door with his SWAT team of ex- executioners. And can you believe that guy listens to Daniel? Instead of cutting him down, he steps the cup of coffee and sits down and says, oh, well, here's what's going on. And takes him to the king. And the king who earlier, when the wise men are talking, he says, you're stalling for time. That's it. You die. When Daniel comes in, Daniel says, can I have a little time? And the king says, sure. God is in charge. First quality to have a calm heart is confidence in God. Second thing is this. What does Daniel and his friends do? Verse 17, the next thing is, Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions. By the way, if you weren't here last week, these, this is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You've heard of them, the guys in the fiery furnace. These are their real names, their Hebrew names. Back to the story. And he told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Daniel calls the guys together and says, guys, we need to have a prayer meeting. They need to be in, and they go to prayer. Daniel and his friends pray and the second quality of a calm heart is constant or persistence in prayer. Constant in prayer. Daniel and his friends prayed, and I believe they prayed with, with earnestness. They, they prayed with passion. I mean, after all, there's nothing like the threat of having your arms and legs ripped off to give you motive to pray. 
But I don't think that they just started praying here. I think prayer was their habit already. We find out later in Daniel that it is Daniel's habit. May I say, if you ever have to outrun a bear, I hope you don't, but if you ever have to outrun a bear, I am pretty confident that you will move faster than you have ever thought possibly that you could in your life. And if you are trying to outrun a bear, you will be extremely grateful and extremely thankful and extremely joyful if you have spent every day of the last ten years putting on your jogging shoes and running a few miles every day. You will also be extremely sad and extremely regretful if the last time you ran was ten years ago and it was to the buffet table. May I say it's that way with prayer? Crisis is a good time to pray, but it's a bad time to start learning how to pray. Crisis rather is the time when the habit of prayer, when the practice of prayer pays great dividends. If it is your habit, if it is your, your practice, prayer in crisis doesn't come as a strange thing. It's a continuing conversation. I recently observed a family in a crisis. And as I watched them, someone in the family thought, we need to pray. And so they all broke out and began to recite the Lord's Prayer. Then there was some kind of awkward silence and then somebody started another little rote prayer and they said another little rote prayer and then another one and then they ran out of prayers that they knew. May I say, it's not a bad thing to recite the Lord's Prayer. That's not not a bad thing to pray. But if crisis comes and the only thing you've got is the Lord's Prayer, it's like trying to run from the bear when you haven't put on jogging shoes in ten years. You see, what God desires for our prayer life to be, our prayer time to be, is a meeting with a familiar friend. It's coming to meet with our Lord whom we meet with often. Hebrews 4 describes that, that, that through because if we have a relationship with Jesus, we can pray like this. Hebrews 4 says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and grace to help in time of need. Prayer is that place where we recognize that we are unable to solve our own problems. Prayer is where we recognize we are just simply inadequate, period. We recognize through prayer our dependence on God and upon His grace. And in prayer, we upload our problems off of our shoulders and onto God's plate. So prayer is not only the place where we find God's help. Prayer is the place where we find God's peace why Paul wrote to the Philippians and he said this, don't be anxious about anything, 
But in everything with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Back to the story, verse 19. Then the, then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. The third quality of a calm heart is not perhaps apparent in this little phrase, but I think it's this. Content to wait. See, if I have the timeline of this story right, and I can't guarantee that I do, but I think the way it works is that Nebuchadnezzar has this dream crisis this night and and by the time that it gets to Daniel and, and his buddies, it's early morning. And Daniel gets to the king fairly early morning and gets back to his friends. And it's, for some of you, late morning, you know, maybe 8, 9 o'clock. For some of us, it's early morning and for us night people. But it's morning. And when does Daniel get the answer? Did you see it? In a vision of the night. Daniel and his buddies they call a prayer meeting immediately and they get down on their knees and there's intense, passionate, fervent prayer and they pray and they wait and they pray and they wait and they wait and they wait and they pray and they wait and they pray and they wait and they wait and they wait. The day goes by and they're into the night. You see, if God worked like I wanted, if I were Daniel, I would have gone to my buddies and I would have said, we got to pray and we pray. and we go, God, we need an answer. If we don't get an answer here, we're going to die. And King Nebuchadnezzar wants to know what his dream is and as well as what it means. And only you can tell us that. So would you give us the answer to that? And God would say, sure, here it is. Boom. And we take it and run to the king and it's all settled. That's the way I would. How many of you guys are like that? That's the way we want God to answer prayer, right? Have you noticed he doesn't usually do that? I think the heart, one of the hardest things that you and I have to do is to wait for God to do things on His timetable rather than on ours. And it seems that He does that a lot. Psalm 27 says, Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. I think the reason he says it twice is because it's almost always that way. Wait on the Lord. Be persistent in prayer and be patient in waiting. God always answers, but often it's not according to our timetable but it is always at the right time. God always answers. And always answers at the right time. It's just, I'd say, usually <laughs> not at our timetable. They wait. They pray. They wait. God gives the answer. And then Daniel's response, what he does next, is shocking. Or at least it's shocking to me. Look at verse 19. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. 
Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes the times and seasons, removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with Him. To You, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for You have given me wisdom and might and now have now made known to me what we asked of You, for You have made known to us the King's matter. The fourth quality of a calm heart is a surprising one. It's being committed to worship. Daniel doesn't jump up getting this vision in, in the night. He doesn't jump up and go, Woo-hoo! and go running down the hall. Yo, wake up, guys. Hananiah, Azariah, Mishael, we got Here's the answer. We got it. He doesn't go running outside to find Arioch Butch, you know, who's probably just outside waiting for these guys to try to make a break for it, you know. And he doesn't run out there and say, don't, don't kill us. We got the answer. He doesn't go running to the king. We got it. The first thing he does is stop. Not just a little 30-second nod to God. This is well-thought-out, well-crafted thoughts. Going into detail about how God is in control of the seasons in my life and God is in control of kings and God is, is in control of the secrets. He knows everything and He has revealed this. God, thank You. You're a faithful and good God. He's committed to worship. It seems to me that few believers today regard worship as a top priority. As I look around at most believers today, we tend to worship when it's convenient. Not necessarily faithfully and continually and habitually. I'm not just talking about going to church, though that is part of it that is significant. It's biblical to make church going, assembling together as a church a top priority. That is biblical. It certainly is what we see, but it's more than that. It is personal worship, like Daniel right here, who just as soon as he gets the answer, he takes time for personal worship. Last Sunday morning, our brother Bob Dyer got up early and got ready for church, as was his custom. You could count on no more than two hands the numbers of times in the last 60 years since Bob became a believer in Jesus that he wasn't in church when the doors were open. That was Bob Dyer. But it wasn't just that Bob Dyer was faithful and committed to always being with the body and in worship of Christ. He was also committed to worshiping privately on his own. 
as was his habit last Sunday morning, after he got up and got ready for church, was all ready to go, he went down and began his own worship time. Since he could no longer read, he turned on and began listening to the Gospel of John and laid down and began soaking in the Word of God and some time in worship. He never made it here because God called him home. So brothers and sisters, that's a man who is committed to worship. If you ever knew Bob Dyer, you also knew a man with a calm heart. May I say these things go together. This is why. Why is worship so important? Because worship reminds us of three things. It reminds us of who God is. Worship also reminds us of who we are. And worship reminds us of what God has done. Because worship is all about rehearsing those things. Who God is, who we are, what God has done. That's what we do in worship. And you see, those are the truths that, will, that provide for us an unshakable confidence in God. And it is when we worship that those things are, they, they dig their roots deep into our soul through worship. We worship God because He is deserving of all of our honor, all of our glory, all of our praise. But when we worship God, we are blessed because we are transformed as those truths sink deep into our soul. And they produce in us, go back to item one on our list, they produce in us an unshakable, unflappable confidence in God. Worship is the means by which all those truths grow roots into our soul. Paul says it this way, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, he says, And we, who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory. When you and I worship Him, we're reflecting God's glory back to Him because we don't have any of our own glory. We're reflecting His glory back to Him. We're being transformed into His likeness with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Worship changes us. Well, there you have it. Four qualities we see in Daniel's life that are essential to a calm heart, to being confident in Christ. Confidence in God, constant in prayer, content to wait, and committed to worship. Let's pray. Father, what a powerful text. Every one of us here from time to time, we struggle when the crises come, when the difficulties come. We tend to panic. We tend to get frustrated. We get angry. We get whatever. We are all but calm. I pray that You would grow these things in us by Your grace. I pray that the more that we worship and as we reflect on on who You are and who we are and all that You have done in us and through us and for us, that it would grow in us confidence in You. 
that would drive us to be more faithful in prayer, that would allow us to be more contented to wait, that will give us more time to pause and worship, and we'll start all over again and build confidence in You. That little by little over the time that You will grow us into Daniel's. Folks, we're calm and confident when the troubles come. So we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.